um, Tabitha shared, the fact that I'm actually standing before you today is a testimony to our wonderful God who's all-powerful. I injured my back on Tuesday night and by Wednesday morning I was really in pain and um, continued doing with what I was doing and um, by Thursday I really couldn't do much. Thursday and Friday I was pretty much in bed and I realized actually that because it was getting better, it was getting worse and not better, that I really needed to call on the body to stand with me because it was spiritual, it wasn't just physical. So thank you to all of you who prayed. It's much better and I'm here to share what God's laid on my heart. What I'm going to do is, very quickly, I'm going to go through the passage, given its historical context, and then I'd like to share a little bit about what I feel God is saying to us today, and then particularly to Catalyst. Um, I wasn't quite sure even up until yesterday what God was wanting to say to you, so it's quite exciting, fresh off the press. <laughs> um, as we know, the purpose of apostolic, that word, apocalyptic, (laughs) which really only means the focus on the last days. So no matter what it's called, it is uh, written to encourage us to do God's will steadfastly. As we know, there were many churches in Asia Minor. Mark has spoken on some of them already. And these seven were apparently selected because of the conditions of the church at the time. God felt that Um, They had a need that he wanted to speak into their church. And, of course, as Mark said, every church in the days gone by can take uh, something from each of these churches and apply it where God is calling us to. Right, let's read the passage, and then I'll give you a background to Sardis. From Revelation 3, it's only six verses, so it won't be too long. To the church at Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As you can see on the map, Sardis is approximately 27 miles south of Thyatira. Is that how you say it? Mark preached on last time. It was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. King Croesus lived there. Um, Some of you may have heard the expression to be as rich as Croesus. Well, that comes from the king who lived there. Um, and he was famous for his wealth. It was situated on the junction of five main roads, so inevitably it became a trade centre and the wealth that came with that. It was a boom town economically. You could actually pan for gold within the streams, um, within the city limits um, of Sardis itself. It flourished with a carpet industry and a woolen industry, and I think that, um, as Mark has said before, the fact that um, they made wool um, 
enabled the making of these beautiful white robes. I've just um, made a slide with some of the points um, as I go through. Because of its wealth and economic success like today, it became a playground for the rich and famous. It was a city that had a name. It was well known for two things, for its wealth, for its woolen industry, but then also for its licentiousness. It was really an ungodly city. It was conquered by the Persians, and it was unheard of until Tiberius rebuilt it after an earthquake. So things obviously didn't go all that well. Sardis now lies entirely in ruins, and it is an archaeological site in the modern Turkish city of Sart. It's only a tiny village, and it's obviously lost its former glory. I just wanted to show you, that's um, a beautiful scenic picture, but as you will see, that's the remnant of one of their um, temples, and it is completely dead. Um, there are few ruins, but um, nothing is left of this um, famous city. Some of that is to do with the patron saint. Uh, it was a, a god called Sybil. Her form was often found on the coins, um, which you know were left lying around in the streets, and she was supposed to have the power to restore the dead to life. But as we can see, not much was brought back to life. If you'd like to follow with me, um, I'm going to just be leaving that slide up while I work through it verse by verse. If you've got your Bible with you, please open to Revelation. First of all, to the angel, uh, the, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write: These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Each of the characteristics of Jesus is derived from the vision that we saw in chapter 1 of the glorified risen Christ, who is both a high priest but also a judge. He judges the whole church. And it also refers back to Old Testament uh, passages like Isaiah 11, where the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit are seen as resting upon the Messiah with wisdom, knowledge, and the power to judge. So as with all scripture, there's a link between the Old Testament and the New Testament and for us today. Christ here possesses seven spirits, which represents the complete spirit knowledge, not only of the deeds of the seven churches then, but also of the church of God in all its completeness today. Um, while I was uh, researching this, I found it interesting to note that it also hints at the um, gifts of the Holy Spirit, like um, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles. So as with all scripture, when God um, is using something to illustrate um, something to us, he will always use that contrast to show the good and the bad. Um, the fact that Jesus holds them, I think, was quite significant because this church needed to know that Christ is revealed to them as the one who has the life-giving spirit. Given where they were coming from, this church was actually dying, and um, Christ is the only one who has the life-giving spirit, unlock, unlike their other gods like Sybil. And of course, the seven stars, we've seen that before. It's the angels of the seven churches, and it also um, refers to other things in Scripture like, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, and Ephesians 5.17, for the things they do in secret are shameful but all things exposed to the light are made evident. So again, not only do we see it literally representing the seven churches, it's the fact that Christ sheds his light um, on all of us and reveals sin. 
Let's look at what Jesus found wrong. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So this would have been quite shocking um, because they thought they were alive and wealthy and having a good time. But the Lord is not deceived. Whatever Christians and outsiders thought of the church, it was it, it was only their opinion. I mean, it, it would be easy for us, for example, to say, we are alive, you know, we were a great church, or even to look good in the sight of the surrounding officer. But the only opinion that matters is God, and it was important that they knew that. <coughs> I came across a humorous story about a little boy on one occasion traveling to church as usual on a Sunday evening. Some of you may have heard it. Um, went with his father as usual, and he sat there beside him on the pew, and being a child, the service as usual seemed extremely boring and dull. He could predict everything that was coming next because the routine was rigid and repetitive. It never varied. Finally, the benediction startled the young lad into consciousness, and he sighed in relief and moved towards the door with his father. There on the wall hung a beautifully embossed bronze plaque, and the little lad had often wondered what it was for. This time he plucked up the courage in the quiet church to ask his dad what it was all about. Proudly, his dad told him that it was in memory of those who died in the services. And you, can, you know where that one's going. Immediately, the innocent boy replied, which one, was it the morning or the evening service? <laughs> so hopefully, they weren't um, as obviously dead as that. <laughs> but the question still remains, what was dead about the church and what needed reviving? There was no indication of trouble from outside forces. Um, there was no persecution. Neither was there any heresy. It seemed to all be, you know, calm and good within the church, unlike some of the other churches that we've looked at. Things seemed to be peaceful and religiously correct. Perhaps it was a church that was simply too good to be true. Its appearance may have meant only that it had compromised fully and completely and silently with the pagan society surrounding it. Um, a, a fancy theologian who I don't personally know called J.B. Caird called Sardis the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. It simply had no effect on the surrounding area at all. Um, when I was um, reading through this idea of a reputation for being alive but dead, um, God brought back to mind the, the confronting event of my mother dying at home when I was a teenager. But somehow that is almost the natural order of things. When you've actually seen somebody that has died, their body is there, but it's without life. That actually seems to be, you, you can understand it. And as I was pondering this a bit more, I really um, had the idea of the Joker from um, Batman, is it? Batman comics? So um, I thought I'd show you this because for me, it just represents something that is meant to be funny. He looked like a clown. Some of you know the original story where he apparently fell into some acid or something which bleached his face and he ended up scarring himself and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, I think it's just so macabre because a clown is meant to be funny, but it's obviously dead, reminds us of death. So um, I guess that's, uh, in, in a way, the way that Jesus would have seen the church at Sardis. Like, you know, clown, happy, they thought they were fine. But on the inside, that's what God was seeing. 
And the biblical contrast, again, is of um, the church as being a living stone. Um, how much more of a contrast can you see? A stone is a dead thing, but um, it is built with Jesus Christ as the living cornerstone. In Scripture, death also stands for the concept of separation from God, not just the absence of life. Um, the, the Bible tells us that Christ is the source of abundant life. As Jeremy was, Jeremy, Jeremy Cricket, <laughs> I do it every time, Jeremy, Jeremy, <laughs> read earlier that um, Christ is the, the, in us is the, is the source of life. And um, I was looking at Ephesians 5.14 where it says, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That idea of, um, you know, Christ's light shining on us and revealing everything so that we can be free to not be separated anymore. That's what brings life. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Charles Swindle, that's verse 2. Charles Swindle says, What begins as a deathbed scene suddenly shifts to an emergency room drama. It's that, it's that wake up. God is attempting to um, shock, shock us, or shock them, it's not us, but us today, of course, back into life again. Um, Jesus is continuing with what's wrong, but um, it's not a wake up as in... Um, a judgment call, it's more that um, of concern. Wake up because worse things are coming. You need to wake up now. Like, wake up, there's a fire in the house type of thing. Emergency room drama. The church had gone to sleep. Sardis had appeared impregnable. It actually sat um, behind a steep, steep cliff, so it couldn't be attacked from behind. And they had assumed that they were safe. So they had stopped watching. They didn't guard themselves, and twice they had actually been attacked and conquered. Sardis was an idolatrous place, but perhaps their greatest problem was that they became complacent. They just stopped watching. So um, it's quite applicable here that Jesus says, wake up, you need to guard not only your physical city, but look at what's happening and guard your church, guard your, your spiritual selves. And it goes on to say, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. That's the rest of verse 2. It was unfinished. Why was it unfinished? Although the church was filled with external works and much activity, it was known as the sleeping church. God called it the sleeping church. Um, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, in the last days they will maintain the outward appearance of religion, but will have repudiated its power. They had a form of godliness. But because of their failure to continue walking with the Lord, they were denying the real power of God. And, of course, that has an application to us today, doesn't it? Some, some may have only been Christians in name only, professing to be Christians and engaging in religious activities. But I think more likely it was believers who had made a good start, but they had failed to move on. So they had started with God, but they failed to grow spiritually and to walk with God um, they were active, engaged in works, but temporarily dead, as in out of fellowship with Christ. There was an unfinished quality um, to their works. Not that it was quantity, it was quality. They were doing a lot, but it was not worth uh, something eternally. Physical life and movement don't necessarily imply presence of spiritual life. Only people in groups directed by the Holy Spirit of God 
uh, will have uh, eternal works of value. Verse 3, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. The tenses here are mixed. Remember is looking back. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast. That was for them in the present time. Hold on to it. Hold fast and repent. And the repent, the word um, used for repent there is actually an ongoing repentance. So it's not just for once, it's ongoing. Um, I like this, this, this verse because it reminds me of what Mark said about although God is a God of judgment, he always gives time for repentance before he judges. And I just praise God that even for a church like Sardis, which was is dead in his eyes, there was still hope. It was meant to encourage action. Um, it was meant to encourage getting back into the word of God and um, getting back into fellowship with Christ. And there's a warning. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. There are many New Testament stories, um, as in Matthew, the parable of the householder and the thief, um, Luke, the faithful servant, in Matthew, the maidens, the talents, the sheep and the goats. Um, and it's just a reminder that there is a need for faithfulness and alertness because judgment is coming. That is, that is a reality. Moving on to verse 4, we get to uh, what Jesus found right. Yet you have a few faithful people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. As I said before, Sardis was a place that was very much, um, the Christianity was had become joined to heathen customs. Um, there were only a few that had not soiled their robes. As in literally, there were um, pagan rites and sexual orgies and things, but also soiled their um, their their trueness to the profession of Christianity. I know that's not English, but you get the idea. <laughs> a white and clean robe was requ was required, even by the worshippers of Sybil, um, which I thought was quite interesting. And um, it's strongly censured here. Only the Laodiceans. Yes, I got it right. <sighs> I practiced that one. <laughs> Um, had been more strongly reprimanded. And there's also um, a link in, uh, in the next verse as it carries on. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Those who overcome and endure the testing will receive God's promised rewards in eternity. And here the white seems to represent moral purity, not just the um, victory and festivity as it is used elsewhere. Apocalyptic, got that one right too. Apocalyptic literature describes the resurrection body as a garment of glory. Um, the, the garment represents righteous acts of the saints. And I also was reminded of the reference to um, Jesus, who obviously was um, uh, the one that took our sins upon him. And he, again, it's, it's letting the sardines, sardines, sardines? <laughs> no? <laughs> <laughs> that um, that it is through Jesus, the possessor of the stars, he is the one that can um, not only wash them white, as in wash their sins white, but he will robe them, he will put his atonement over us when judgment comes, that it is through Christ that we are, we are able to wear a white robe of moral purity. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. It's a bit of a strange one, this. It's a positive point that's made by denying its opposite in order to make it more positive. 
It stresses the security of the believer, for every believer's name is written in the book of life. But it's also a way of promising something special to the overcomer in the kingdom um, of God in the future. Practically every city of that day kept a roll or register of its citizens. One who had performed some great exploit would um, actually be honored by having his name written in gold letters in the book. So this was the ultimate honor. And I think that here it implies not only that the overcomer will have his name in the book of life, that there will be a special distinction and that the Lord himself will identify with him in, um, before Christ and the angels. Matthew 10 tells us that whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. And um, it's good to know that there were a few that were faithful and that would be rewarded. And then it ends with, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, it's a repetition of a lot of these letters as in Revelation 2 to Ephesus. Um, listen and um, I will, you know, those that listen and obey I will reward. Um, in Revelation 2 it was, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Um, here I think it, it's already been said that we will have the promise of eternity with Christ. As I was preparing, I thought, well, it's all very well to know that that's what happened to the church in the past, but what relevance does it have for us today? So I'll just um, put a few questions up there to, to start you thinking, and um, I've really been praying that your hearts would be open to what God is, is going to raise up within you. Later on, at the end of this, we will have a time of prayer for each other. So if you can just start thinking and, and allow your spirit to receive what God is laying on your heart to look at later. How do we know if our works as a church are incomplete? A few questions. Do we as a church make time to hear from God? Yes, we do. Do we do it regularly? Yes, I think so. We're okay with that one. Do we allow God's spirit to direct our actions before we act? Sometimes. Maybe. <laughs> if we have to rely on God, <laughs> like I had to this last week. Do we have a love for the spiritually lost? Are we growing in our knowledge and understanding of Christ? We sit here every Sunday, but are we actually growing in the way that we apply it? Do we feel fellowship with others in his body? Do we allow the use of the spiritual gifts that he's given us for the good of catalyst? Do we give sacrificially of money, time, resources, and energy for activities that God wants us to, and not just those that are good? As I said, um, there are a few points that I thought would be relevant to probably all churches, but to Catalyst as well. Firstly, to be vigilant, just as the Sardinians. Sardinians. <laughs> I didn't say it that time first. <laughs> um, just as they had to, to wake up and realize that no city is actually uh, safe. All, all cities have a, uh, have ability to be attacked as we know that um, Satan is likened to a roaring lion, a roaring lion in Peter, um, and I think not only is it to protect our church from from Satan and, and his attacks, but it's also more subtle than that. It's to keep making sure that we are not doing things in our church programs out of, and working out of our own energies, 
that we are actually using God's resources to empower us. And I think that's a very easy thing to do. And we have to continually stop and ask ourselves, be vigilant. Where is this coming from? What resources am I using from within myself? The need to keep repenting. All of the seven churches, except for Smyrna, the persecuted church, and Philadelphia, the faithful church, were told that they needed to keep repenting. And um, I feel that believers have a responsibility to walk by faith and um, um, to, to continue to ask God uh, what he's wanting them to do because it's very easy to quench the flow of the Holy Spirit. Um, perhaps the most important one I felt was that God calls those to repentance as a sign of his love. He's not doing it out of, like, I'm coming to get you, that he really is doing it out of love. Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 he rebukes those he loves. Ephesians 2 tells us, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Um, and, and it also brought to mind the story of Jesus asking Peter three times, do you love me? And at the end of it, Peter actually got quite hurt, and he said, of course I do, you know, kind of, why do you keep asking me? Um, and Jesus' answer was quite interesting. He said, um, while they were having a conversation, Jesus said, feed my sheep. He turned and he saw one of the disciples following them. And he said to Jesus, um, what about him? He turned around, saw him, and he said, well, you know, okay, stop asking me questions now. What about him? And Jesus answered, basically, if I wanted him to remain alive, whatever I wanted, what is that to you? You must follow me. Um, and I think love and a personal responsibility um, as part of the body of Christ, is really something that um, God is calling us to as catalyst. It's all very well to be, you know, to have our relationship with God, but as I will um, show you with some slides now, it's the the individual powers once they're together that actually have an impact on the surrounding community. And um, yes, I, I pray that not only would we look at our relationship with God, but that we would look around us at the church body as well as out there. For, for those of you who are scientists, you might know the formula F equals MA. It's to do with force, the amount of force. <laughs> Someone's laughing. Sorry to remind you. If I get it right, it's from my science days. It's something like force is, is the, the mass of something, in other words, how heavy it is, times by the speed it's going, the acceleration, to put it simply. And um, we, as, as a force, as a church, having an impact on the surrounding community, it's a bit like that. You know, we each have a little bit of force on our own, but if we join together, how much more are we going to be able to impact those and help those around us? And then I'd, uh, this is the part that I get excited about. <laughs> and it's not just I get a chance to show you my holiday pictures. Two weeks ago I was in Muldura. Um, but as I was looking for a pretty picture to put as a background to one of these slides, um, God really started speaking to me. And he said, there's something in this that I want you to tell the church. This was taken just um, towards the end of the day from um, where I was staying. And it's a pretty picture. You can see the, uh, the water looks blue, as one of my friends told me. Wow, it looks blue. You can see you know, a bit further it's going down, and it looks wonderful. But when you get a bit further, that was darker because the sun was going down, not because the river was dirtier. When you actually get close to the river and into it, 
as we did when we hired a tinny and went upstream, the water's actually brown, you know. Looks good till you get there, and then it's actually brown. Um, and there were a lot of dead things as that dead tree there going past, weird and wonderful shapes, pretty dead. It wasn't quite – I wouldn't have liked necessarily to swim in some of those places, but anyway, I just, just wanted to say sometimes, you know, um, things in the church look good, and, and it's okay if we're not involved. But when we actually get close up, they don't actually look as appealing. But if God is telling us to be there, we need to be there. We were overtaken in our little tinny going upstream with this little motor by a canoeist. Now, when I told my son Christopher that I was going to say that, he immediately got defensive and he said, well, Mom, it wasn't a canoeist, it's a kayakist. Kayaks are more streamlined and they go faster and he had a whole, a whole explanation for it. But basically, there we were doing a little bit, you know, going against the current and we were overtaken by a canoeist. And we were overtaken quite substantially. The good news is that when he stopped to have a drink, we continued past him. <laughs> we finally, we were looking for somewhere to swim. We'd been told that the river had all sorts of, you know, um, whirlpools and that we weren't actually be going to be able to pull someone behind on a, a lilo or a ring or whatever, as we'd hoped, because the river was flowing so strongly. So we looked at a couple of places. We were intelligent enough not to stop there um, because it was pretty much not flowing, it was dead and, and stagnant. So just a little bit further this side, <laughs> we had a little quick swim in the freezing cold water in this, um, I don't know what you call it, like a, a wetland, almost wetland area, billabong kind of, it's, that's Australian, um, billabong area. And, and it looks okay. We, we had stepped out of the main flow of the water. There was just enough in there to... Uh, Keep me happy that we weren't about to die of some foreign illness. And it was great, except that, that it actually wasn't so great, really. It looks great in the picture. But if you look right on the left-hand side, you can see footsteps. It was all mucky and horrible. And really, this was just so that I could take the picture. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the, point, the point with that, let me go back to it, is that um, it's, not, it's not good for us to be like the Church of Sardis and, and dead in one area of our lives, that we need to keep asking God where he wants us. And it's not very often that he keeps us in a place that is actually not flowing for very long. So that, that's the analogy. And then we went to an orange farm. That's my son Christopher who assured me he nearly broke his back in order for the uh, photograph to be taken because there was no seat or anything. But again, we, we went to an orange farm and it was quite interesting because they have, you know, all different kinds of oranges, more than you could possibly imagine. Um, but in order to produce the citrus fruit, it's quite a procedure. They have to pump uh, water from the Murray, then, which, which is in itself quite an expense, and once they've got all of that right, um, it actually leaches salt out of the soil. So then they have to have like a salt pan collection kind of point so that they don't then pollute the Murray, so it all becomes quite complicated. But I was really struck yesterday as I was going through this that God is asking us to produce spiritual fruit, and it's not easy. Um, but that if we want to be obedient, we want to stay alive, we want to grow, <clears throat> that we need to actually be obedient. So if you're hesitating and there's an area that God is working on, just get a picture of the Muldura orange, and it might help you a little bit. <clears throat> 
And that that was um, both of my sons. You may not have seen my older son, but um, that was the little tinny that we went um, upstream. Um, and where I had had the idea of, you know, going against the stream is pretty hard. But when you're in the flow, when all of you are together and the current is flowing strongly, it's pretty easy. It took us three hours one way and it took us an hour just to come back with the current. So stick together is what I'm saying. How are we doing as individuals? Each of us has ears. It says, he who has ears, let him listen. How are we doing um, with applying God's word to our life? Each of us has, has gifts. Not only in my questions to the church, I said, you know, are we asking God to show us where our gifts can be used? But um, how are we doing personally in our own lives with that too? I've put a few questions up there. Um, the, the letter to the church at Sardis focused a lot on them being dead. Wake up, you know, stir up that w within you, um, which needs to be made alive. And those of you who were here on the very first Sunday of Catalyst, I remember saying, God had laid in my heart, John 10, 10, you know, for I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. Um, so I was quite excited to be able to preach on this today. Um, although it makes reference in there to Christ coming as a thief, it's the unexpectedness of it. It's not that, obviously, Christ would come like a thief to kill and destroy, but um, he's come that we can have life and have it to the full. So what I'd like to do just to end off with, I will pray, and then I'll ask us to get into groups of about three, uh, men with men, women with women, and I um, just really pray that God would Lay on your heart as we wait in the stillness before we start to pray something that he wants to stir into life in you. Not, you know, perhaps it's something that you've pushed down a little bit or you don't feel like working on, but remembering that fruit is, is difficult to produce, um, that you would ask God's help in um, an area of your life. Um, just, just to give you some ideas um, to, to get your spirits tuned in, I put a few questions up there. For an example, when you're asking what area of my life does God want me to grow in right now, it could be your prayer life. It could be a discipline. That's the one that most of us don't like. Is it the getting up early? Because that's when I hear from God when the house is quiet. Um, if you've got teenagers, it certainly won't be at night because they will outlast you. Deep, is it a deeper hunger that you want? You may want to read the Word of God, but you may need God to stir up a hunger in order to do that. Um, and there are just some other ideas up there. So I'll close in prayer, and then I'll ask us to get into groups of about three. It's going to be open-ended. Um, so once, you've, once you feel that you know where God wants to speak to you, the others in your group are going to pray into your life. Um, and when you're finished doing that, we're finished. Um, if we could perhaps just be a bit sensitive to those people that might want prayer for other things, which is um, will happen after that. And then to go and get your children. And if the sun is out, to enjoy tea outside for a change. <laughs> um, yes, so let's end in prayer and then we can get into our groups. Father God, I thank you that your word is a living two-edged sword, Lord. Um, but I thank you today that 
you use that sword with love, Lord, that um, you don't very often ask us to just get up and jump into a river, that you are asking us very gently just to look at which area of our life needs to be stirred up to life. And I pray that um, as we end and move into a time of prayer, that your spirit would speak to each person here, that they would hear clearly which area you are calling them to stir to life. Thank you for the privilege of um, bringing your word to Catalyst, and I pray that you would continue to guide and direct us as a church, um, and that most of all, we know that it's done through love, through your love and your empowerment and your ability. Thank you for the gifts that you've given each one of us, and just thank you that you're a good God who loves to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.